Okay, if you have your Bible this morning, why don't we go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans 9. That's where we'll be uh, today. Excited for the week ahead. Thank you again so much. For those of you who are helping out at Shepherd's Conference this week, if you are not able to help out, please pray for the conference. Uh, We live in a crazy world, and the message of the gospel is what the world needs, and healthy churches that preach that message, live that message is what the world needs. And so we just pray that this week uh, the Lord would use the conference to help the pastors that are coming. Romans chapter 9. We all are aware that so much of our own experience in life has to do with expectations. Expectations shape our experience. For instance, when we feel entitled, when we are expecting something good to happen, it is easy to be disappointed. On the other hand, if you have no expectations or low expectations, you often end up surprised, encouraged, thankful, Uh, humbled by the kindness that is shown to you. Take, for example, birthdays. Some of you have had those birthdays where you want everyone to know that this was the day of your birth. And you're like, this is going to be epic. Balloons are coming my way. I know all my friends are going to surprise me. And then you find out no text messages, no shout outs on the grams or anything like that. And you're just, you're done. Nobody likes you. Meanwhile, on the other hand, when you have thought, Man, I am not going to expect anything today. Who cares? It's the, it's the day my mom delivered me. Shout out to her, not to me. Then you're always surprised when people like buy you lunch and get you something. It's nice. Expectations change it. When you expect your sports team to win and they don't win, that's uh, frustrating. Even when you expect them to win and they do win, you're like, ah, they didn't win by enough. But when you don't expect them to win, such as the Raider fan that I am, and they never, then when they do actually win, you feel really good. You're like, hey, something just happened. Another example, if a, if a girl thinks this is the date, this is the date where he's pulling the ring out of the box, right? Expectations. Guys, no matter how much money is spent or how, uh, how nice the restaurant is, if there is no ring by the end of the night, she is going to be very disappointed. So don't worry, all of you are about 15 years away from that. But overall, that's expectations shape our experience. That's a little bit of what Romans 9, 10, and 11 is like. So if your expectation is that, uh, that man is pretty much good and deserving of God's favor and pretty much everyone deserves to go to heaven, then Romans 9, 10, 11 are very confusing and maybe frustrating or disturbing chapters. But if your expectation is, well, we're sinful people who are lost, who deserve no good thing from God, the Romans 9, 10, 11 are incredible, incredibly encouraging, helpful for the soul, cause us to praise God, give us reasons to be thankful. These three chapters are amazing. And that's what we've been looking at last week. We looked at Romans chapter 9. Now, if you were to look for a a one-sentence summary of Romans 9, 10, and 11, that's what we're looking at here, this letter to the Romans, it's in Romans 9, verse 6. It's what Paul is trying to do for three chapters. If you want a thesis statement, it's this, Romans 9, 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. 
Here's the, here's the deal. Here's the background. Jesus has come. The Old Testament Messiah who would come and deliver people from sin. He has come. And there are so many people coming to place their faith in him. But not many of the Jews are. The people of Israel who, who are God's people in the Old Testament, few of them are coming. And the expectation is, well, wouldn't the Messiah come and rescue every Israelite? Everyone from one of the 12 tribes of Jacob? Perhaps God's promise failed. And if his promises to Israel failed, maybe his promises to us fail as well. And that's what Paul is proving. No, he's saying, nope, God's promises have not failed. And so what we want to do is we want to continue to show this. Last week he was demonstrating how, no, God has picked certain people to be his people and his promises to them have never failed. We're going to try to do this morning if we have time and uh, we'll see how far we get, is we want to see what the rest of the argument looks like. Romans 10 and Romans 11. So we're going to look at, we're going to, not going to go in depth. We're going to walk through it so that way you understand. See, these are some of the hardest chapters in the Bible. We want you to understand the big picture of what's going on here. We want to, and we want our expectations to be right as well. It's really interesting. Deuteronomy chapter 7, <coughs> excuse me. Deuteronomy 7 says this, God telling Israel, he says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all people. But why did God choose Israel? But it was because the Lord loves you. Why does God love Israel? Expectations? Because they were great, they were awesome, they're deserving? No. He loved them because he loved them. What we'll see here, if your expectations are right, Romans 10 and 11 are incredible, really, really encouraging passages. Now, it's two chapters. It's 57 verses. We'll see how far we get through it today. How do you summarize that? How do you think about, how's Josh going to give us an outline for how to think of these two chapters? Well, I'm going to have you think about it in four words. We're going to use four words to help us understand what's happening here in this chapter. And I've picked four what I'll call a Christianese words. You know, those words that we always use as Christians, but we're not always sure exactly what they mean. Uh, We use them around the church a lot, but maybe they don't get used outside of church. Four words are going to help us understand these two chapters. Those four words are faith, Israel, Gentiles, and God. There, the last one's easy. No, no, No difficult spelling there. Faith, Israel, Gentiles, God. And the hope is by understanding these four words rightly, we understand Paul's argument in these chapters. And my hope is by rightly understanding these, you would have clarity on what it means to live for the Lord and who God is. So let's look at these. We'll spend most of our time on the first one, faith. In fact, we might only get to number one today, and then we do two, three, four next week. Let's think about faith. So point number one, if you're one of those note takers, faith. We are in Romans chapter 10 today. <coughs> Romans chapter 10. Now in Romans 9, Paul just described God's choice of sinners. That is, all of earth is in rebellion against God. And in his mercy, he said, I'm going to love this enemy anyway. I'm going to have my son die for this sinner anyway. That's Romans chapter 9. In Romans 9, 32, if you look at the end there, the the question would be why, in Romans 9, 32, why? Why is Israel, why are so many Israelites, so many people that are related to Jesus, Why are they not saved? And you'd think it would be because they're not chosen. But the answer is, why? 
because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Israel is on Paul's mind. And he's thinking about his, God's choice of sinners, but he's saying that it's because Israel did not pursue salvation by faith. For this point, I, I want to give you a few lessons on faith that we learn from this chapter. Here's, here's the first one. Look at it. The first lesson is faith is not opposed to election. I think I have that there. Yeah, faith is not opposed or is not against election. <coughs> Excuse me. Chapter 10, verse 1, Paul says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. So look at Paul saying his passion, his enthusiasm, his, the thing that he wants is for his kinsmen, his native Israelites, to be saved. And not only is it his passion, what it says, my heart's desire and my prayer. My prayer for them is that they would come to know Christ. Now that's a good question for us, right? How often do we pray for unsaved people? Are we more likely to talk about how bad people are to other Christians or more likely to talk to God about saving bad people? That's a fair question for us. But what I want you to think about here is notice, Paul just got done in all of chapter 9 talking about election. God's sovereign choice. God before the foundation of the world chooses sinners to love. And what some people will argue is, ah, the problem I have with election is it would make things very stoic. It'd make things really cold. Like if God just chooses, then it's like, then why evangelize? Then why try, right? The chosen are going to get chosen, and the unchosen are not going to get chosen. And, you know, we, what's the point? Who cares? And you notice that with Paul? That is not Paul's heart at all. His heart is, I have a burden for unsaved people. And I'm praying for unsaved people. Election is not a, uh, a reason for him not to pray. If anything, it's fueling the God who can choose, then I'm going to pray for people. Because he's the only one that could save them. He's, he's, uh, he, his, they are on his mind. And I think that's a good lesson for us there. About election doesn't undo our evangelism. Look at verse 2. He says, for I, bear them, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. I'm burdened for them because they think of religious things. They have the zeal for God. They'll speak about God, these Israelites, but not according to the truth. They don't know it. And so that's what's on Paul's mind. What I want us to notice is exactly this point. Election and faith don't need to be pitted against each other. Right? That doesn't undo our evangelism. It also doesn't get you off the hook if you don't believe. So I, you know, there have been times where I've talked with students and I've said, talk to me where you're at with the Lord. Uh, how, you know, do you love Christ? And they'll be open, which I always appreciate when a student says like, I'm here because my parents make me, I don't really love the Lord. But then you'll hear them say things like, well, you know, I'm, I'm not really elect. So that's why I'm not believing. Friends, that's not an excuse in the Bible. You know, when, when you meet God one day, you can't be like, well, hold on, let me pull out my non-elect voucher. God, there's nothing I could do about it. The Bible holds us still responsible. God holds us responsible for our faith in him. Even though we're going to still define what faith means, you are responsible to put your trust in God. It's a command from Jesus. Mark chapter 1, Jesus goes about preaching saying what? Repent and believe. Repent and have faith in the good news. And so faith 
is something all are called to regardless of election status. It doesn't undo God's choice. So chapter 10, first thing we see, faith, uh, in this word of faith, we see faith is not opposed, is not against election. Second, what I want you to see is faith is not by works. Rather, you could say salvation by faith is, is opposite of works. Faith and works in regards to how to get saved are pitted against each other. What do they have? Paul said they're, you know, not according to knowledge, right? And what does he mean they don't have knowledge? Well, verse 3, he says, For these Israelites, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So what you notice here is this, this word that we throw around, speaking of a church word, it's the word righteousness. That has the idea of rightness. How do you have a, a rightness before God? Which, which I think is a very important question. How do you get right with God? How are you right approved in God's side? It's been a theme we've seen in Romans. And here Paul says there's, they chose a righteousness on their own rather than, just look at the text, a righteousness from God. Do you see that? There's a comparison between own righteousness, self-righteousness, and righteousness that's external, righteousness that comes from another, righteousness from God. <clears throat> and we know that this righteousness of God, according to verse 4, says it's, it's for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Let's look at verse 5, and we'll, we'll un- unpack this more. Verse 5, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. That the person who does the commandments shall live by them. So there are really two ways to live. One of those ways is I make myself righteous right in God's sight. And the second way is that I receive righteousness, rightness from God. Let me explain. Most people, if you ask them how to get to heaven, it's you need to be a good person. You need to share Uh, vax up, Uh, you need to give to charity, rock the yellow and blue right now for what's happened across the world. They're looking for things to do. In fact, I I think the reason why so many of these like online social media hashtag causes uh, people are are attached to them is because they're a way to make yourself right, to make yourself better. And not all of these things are bad things. A lot of these things are good things, but it's righteousness based on your own. It's making yourself good in God's sight. It's you acting in a way so that God has to accept you. The problem is, how good is good enough? It's the question I like to ask. So, sometimes, we'll talk about evangelism next week. Sometimes evangelism, you guys think, oh, if I'm going to evangelize, I need to do all the things that Pastor John does on a Sunday morning. And you explain everything with every verse. What you need to sometimes just do is ask good questions. So when somebody says, well, you obey enough to get to heaven, you just ask them. So how do you know when you've done enough? How do you know when you're right enough, obedient enough, pray enough, read enough? Because James chapter 2, verse 10, take a look on the screen, says this, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. That is, if you're perfect, hypothetically, in every way, but you stumble once, the Bible says... You're guilty of all of God's commands. Why? Well, because you're sinning against God. And the same God who said, do not murder, 
said, do not steal. So whether you murder or steal, you've offended him. And therefore, you are not right. You cannot be accepted by God. You cannot be welcomed into his presence. That's the righteousness based on the law. That's the righteousness that says, I'm going to work for it. I'm going to earn it. But there's another righteousness. There's someone who came to be good on our behalf. These are such good verses. You you jot these down, at least look at these. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming an example to follow in. Is that what Galatians 3 says? Jesus is good, so you be good like Jesus and you'll be forgiven. No, we cannot be good. Instead Instead it says what? He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That is the punishment we deserve. Jesus took on the cross. I curse it as everyone who is hanging on a tree. It wasn't just that Jesus was compassionate and willing to die. It wasn't just nails. It was the wrath of God for our sin that he took on the cross. It's exactly what happens. He takes the punishment we deserve. And when we trust in him, when we say, I need someone to make me righteous, I can't make myself righteous. What is it? 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, God made him, made Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is, Jesus lives this perfect life. We live a sinful life. But when we come to Christ, not only is all our sin put on him on the cross, but his perfect life is given to us, as if we've lived perfectly, as if we've never sinned. And so if you want to work for God's perfection, that's one option. Or if you want to accept perfection, that's what Paul is talking about. That's what Israel's missed out on, is accepting, trusting in that somebody has made you right. And so Israel's unsaved because they've rejected Jesus. They've rejected the only path for someone outside of them to make them right with God. And Paul explains that. Look at verse 6 now. He says, but the righteousness based on faith says, don't do this. He says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven or who will descend into the abyss. Uh, Verse 6, it says, that is to bring Christ down or that is to bring Christ up from the dead. What what is Paul saying there? Going into heaven and going into the abyss? And what do we do with that, with those passages there? Well, that's from Deuteronomy chapter 30. Here's what Paul is basically saying. It's not by works. He's saying, don't think you need to ascend up into heaven to bring Christ down to rescue you. Or don't think you need to earn something and work hard to bring Christ to raise on your behalf. Right? Don't, don't try to do something to earn Jesus' favor or to, to get God on your side. But what should we do instead? Verse 8. But what does it say? The word, again another reference, Deuteronomy 32. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay, let's think about this. We're in dangerous water here. Let me tell you why. Because we just tackled what is like an Awana verse, or a children's ministry verse. This is a verse some of you have memorized. You've got it written down somewhere, but we can't miss it. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, verse 8, the word is near you, and it's by confessing, and believing that you will be saved. What do we think about this? How should we think about it? Well, 
I think this illustrates what the gospel is. The word gospel, can someone tell me what gospel means what? Gospel means good news. And you've heard me differentiate before. The gospel is good news, not good advice. So good advice would be like a city. Uh, there's a country at war. Uh, and uh, someone shows up to a city and saying, hey, the enemy is coming. And so in order for us to win the battle, we're going to need to move troops here, move troops there. We'll have to ration in this way. We can win. You can win, but you have to do all these things. Okay, that's good advice. Good news is you're at war and somebody comes and says, the war's over. Victory is yours. Here, just, just embrace that you've won. Embrace the victory and live in the victory. Okay, that's what it means that the word is near. Don't go up to heaven to earn it. Go down below to, don't try to go below to, to get Jesus to raise the dead on your behalf. No, the word is here. Here's the word. Jesus has died for your sin if you trust in him. And so all you need to do is believe and confess and take hold of Christ. Not just factually believe, but own him. Love him. Give your life over. Entrust your life over in faith. That is the news. Again, verse 11, for the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. This is, by the way, is good news for everybody. Verse 12, for there is no distinction, Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Listen, this morning, if you have a religious background or a totally non-religious background, Jesus offers this gospel to you. Some of you have thought, man, I'm just not good enough to be one of God's people. I don't know enough. I haven't obeyed enough. It's not about earning it. We've just said it's about trusting in Jesus to rescue you. And Jesus can forgive you of your sins this morning by trusting, saying, Lord, I entrust my life to you to rescue me. And we see that pictured perfectly in verse 13. Okay, so here's the question. How do I know I really have faith or I'm just like a cultural Christian. Josh, I've grown up going to church. I've known people that grew up going to church that don't love Jesus. I know people that grew up going to church don't love Jesus. How do I know? I'm so glad you asked that. Paul anticipated your question. Verse 13, right? Verse 13 says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So you call on the name of the Lord to be saved. What does that mean? I want you to picture a scene in like a swimming pool and somebody is drowning. And what do they do? They call out. They call for the lifeguard to rescue them. When I was in high school, we used to go, uh, the beach that was closest to us was Oceanside. And we went out there and me and my friend, we thought we were you know, we were both former basketball players at that point, and we were somewhat athletic. And I, I mean, I was a swimmer when I was in third grade. I won the Marlin of the Month award, which you can talk about another time. But, but we went out there, and uh, what we didn't do is notice the warning about the strong currents that were happening uh, if you went further out past the first set of waves. And so we're doing the dumb game that high school dudes like to do at the beach, which is called throw the tennis ball and go get it. And when you get it, go throw it further out. And so we're just getting really far out there. And all of a sudden, my friend goes, oh, I have a cramp. I can't get in. And I'm like, oh, no, what is going to happen? And so 
We're trying to swim to shore, and we are not getting any closer. The only thing we're getting closer to is the pier. And so what happens is this little lifeguard girl who's about this tall, mind you, we're again both about this tall, comes out and you go, do you guys need, do you guys need help? And I go, well, I'm fine, but he's, he's struggling. And so she's towing my friend in. She's cooking, so I just kind of grab his heel and paddle with one arm, and <coughs> we make it through, and uh, we lived. So there you go. There's that story right there. What, what do you need at that point? Here's what I want to differentiate. What, what you not, don't need is help. You need rescuing. To call on Jesus is not to call on him as your helper, but to call on him as your savior. You are not someone who's struggling and needs Jesus to give you the boost to become the person that you are. No, you're someone who is drowning, and if he doesn't come save you, you're going to perish. That's what it means to call on the Lord. It's not to just recognize Jesus, to sing songs about Jesus, to say Jesus. It's, I needed Jesus to rescue me, to rescue me from hell. That any day that I'm not in hell is a day that I'm not getting what I deserve, but Jesus rescued me from my sin. That's what it means to call on the Lord. And I would just ask, have you done that? Have you in desperation, recognizing your sin, called on Jesus? I wonder for you, if you're in here this morning, if you've really called on Christ, not just in an academic way, a theological way, I know Jesus is the right answer way, but in a, no, I needed Jesus to save me. Here's the good news. If you recognize your sin before a holy God, Jesus is a savior. He comes. There are no voices that call on him that he ignores, but he comes and truly rescues from their sin all who call upon him. That's what faith looks like. Faith is grabbing onto Jesus because you need him to deliver you from sin. That's what faith looks like. Let's see what else we see of faith here. So we see faith, it's not, uh, it's not against election. It's not by works. It's by faith in Jesus we're saved. See, thirdly here, faith comes by hearing. By hearing. Okay, so you need somebody in order to get saved to call out to Christ, rescue me from my sin. What does it say? Verse 14, then Paul says, well, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they, are they to believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear Without someone preaching. Okay. Well, if someone's going to call on Jesus, they need to believe everything that Jesus says is true. Believe that sin is real, heaven and hell are real, death is coming, and that Jesus actually died for their sins. Okay, they need to believe that. Well, in order to believe that, they need to what? They need to hear it. They need to have somebody explain it. And if they're going to hear it, then somebody has to go tell them about it. That's what Paul is uh, discussing here. He's talking about... The nature of how truth is out. Verse 15 then says, And how are they to preach unless they are sent? How are they to preach unless somebody says, Here's the good news. Go tell other people about it. Now you know it. Go tell everyone else. And then he gives this quote. He says, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now, this verse is always strange to me. Because I think feet are kind of gnarly. Right? Feet are unclean. You've seen your friend one time take their socks off and you're hanging out and you're like, Bro, put your shoes back on. or so Maybe socks first, then your shoes on. That would, that would help with everything. But what, and, and feet, by the way, back then were not the most pleasant thing either. The point is this. How good is it when somebody comes preaching the good news of the gospel? 
preaching the news that someone's you. What you see here are sort of the, the basics and the beauty of evangelism. What, what are the basics of evangelism? Fundamentally, this is it. Evangelism, this word that we'll talk about next Sunday. Evangelism is sharing the good news about Jesus. It's sharing news. It's telling you, here's what Jesus has done. So Jesus has come, eternal God, to live the life we should have lived and then die the death we should have died. He's already defeated sin and death on the cross. Evangelism is not telling people good advice. It's giving them news. This has been done. And so it's sort of this game of telephone. You're just passing on what's already been told to you and you're passing on to others as well. That's what this looks like. You announce the finished work of Jesus. But do you see also in this passage the beauty of it? Because faith, verse 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That is, how do I reach people? Okay, let's ask this question. You know your neighbors are going to perish. You know your classmates are going to be separated from Christ forever. You know your unsaved friends will have no hope of eternal joy unless they come to Jesus. Then what should I do? Well, I should pray like Paul prays. I should care like Paul cares. Remember, unsaved people aren't idiots. They're souls that need rescuing. But I should also share the good news. I want to help them to hear. Any chance I get to help them to hear the good news, to help them to hear about Jesus and forgiveness, I'm going to do it. So whether it's I'm talking to them about it, or I'm bringing them places where they're going to hear about it. What do they need in order to have faith? They need to hear. They need to hear the good news. So if you're saying, man, I want to get actively involved in reaching my friends. It's by getting them places, either from you or from others, that they could hear about the gospel. Faith comes by hearing. Not just by modeling, though living a good life is helpful. It's good. We should live out what we proclaim. We should help them to hear it as well. I want verse 17 to be the verse that helps you understand why we take preaching so seriously. Think about it. Faith comes by hearing. And if, if you've got a friend right now that has a hard time listening, give them a quick nudge. They could tune out in like two minutes. But listen to this. This is why we do stuff like Hey, let's make sure you're listening to the sermon. Hey, let's make sure that if you're not, not going to listen here, go up to fellowship group with your parents so you listen up there. Why do we do that? What a weird thing for us to do. Like, I could just preach and be done. It is Josh, Josh has got low self-esteem. Josh really wants everyone to listen to him because his kids don't respect him. And yada, yada, that's what's going on. No, listen, listen. It's not about me. It's not about social order. It's about hearing. There's no way. You can come to faith without hearing the word, without listening to it. There's never been a soul in heaven who did not listen to the word of God during his time on earth or her time on earth. It can't happen. And so that's why we'll pray. And that's why like some of you before, you've, you've seen me, I've talked to you, say, listen, why? It's, I, don't, I don't care. I'm not personally offended. The point is, you can't be doing spiritually well. You cannot have faith without hearing without listening, without focusing on the word. I think it's part of why some people are so, uh, 
so set on not listening because they know if I actually listen to this book, I'd have to consider it what it means for my life. And I don't want any part of that. So I will comfortably be ignorant because I don't want any sort of change. But no, friends, faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of Christ. So what do we see again so far? Faith, where does this faith, this trust in Jesus, it's not undone by election. It's not about works. It's about trusting Jesus to save you, not just help you. It comes by hearing the word. That's why whether, if you're like, man, I need my faith strengthened. Come listen to the word. Listen to it and believe it. Um, I would even encourage you, I'll be honest, I find these devices super distracting. I don't know why Apple decided to give me an update on my weekly use every Sunday during first service. I don't know if your phone does that as well. But I, I need my faith strengthened, so I need to do better at ignoring this. Tim, I'll text you back later, by the way. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I, need, I need to do better by ignoring this so I could hear the word so that my faith is strengthened by the word itself. You know what's so funny is Jesus said that man does not live by bread alone, but how does man live? By every word that comes from God. That is how we grow in our faith. And if you want to grow faith, if you want to come to know Christ, it comes by hearing his word. Finally, let's look at this this morning. We'll call it a day. We'll just look at chapter 10 today. Fourthly, I want you to see this. Hearing does not guarantee faith. Hearing does not guarantee faith. So, you cannot believe in Christ. You cannot have faith in Jesus unless you hear the word. But don't think that just because you hear means you necessarily have faith. Verse 18, Paul says, But I ask, have they, being Israel, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth. And their words to the ends of the world. That's Psalm 19. God's word is heard everywhere. The truth about God is visible in creation itself. And Psalm 19 would talk about further about the word of the Lord. But I ask, verse 19, did Israel not understand? For Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. This is Deuteronomy 32. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. That is God is, Paul's argument is, so are you saying that Israel hasn't heard? Oh no, they have heard. So look, hearing is necessary for faith. But hearing does not guarantee faith. Because we'll look at Israel, they heard the word. And, and Jesus come and spoke to them. And Jesus would say things, and I think he would say this to some of you this morning. He said, how often I, would, I wish I could gather you. Like a mother hen gathers her chicks. How often I wanted to rescue you. But you were unwilling. I mean... Jesus <laughs> would, would literally heal people. He said, the kingdom is here, repent and believe, heal someone. And the Pharisees would go, ah, power of Beelzebub. It's probably demonic power, right? Blinded. 
Some of you think, man, if Jesus were to show up, then I'd actually believe it. You wouldn't. Because hearing doesn't doesn't necessarily imply faith will happen. You have to hear, but then you have to believe. And so, student, I would just ask, how are you doing with the word that you're hearing? Are you believing the word? And Pastor John talks on Sunday, when I preach on Sunday, when your Bible study shepherd preaches Wednesday. Are you believing the word? Are you clinging to the word in faith? Not just factually believing it, but devoting your life over to it. It's interesting, in Mark chapter 4, Jesus tells a parable. You're familiar with this parable. It's the parable of the sower. It talks about a man going out throwing seeds. Some land on the road, some on the shallow soil, some on the rocky soil, some on good soil. And based on where they land, there's a different crop that does or doesn't grow up. Do you know what his point of that parable is? He says, be careful then how you hear. Because there is a way to hear God's word that ignores it. There's a way to hear God's word that doesn't really grab onto it when life gets too difficult. Or that doesn't really love it when the world looks more appealing. And there's a way to hear God's word that results in obedience. All of you are really good listeners. We really do. We have a group that, that you guys open your Bibles Take notes, some of you. Nobody knows except the Lord what happens to those notes between now and next Sunday. But you take notes. The question is, how are you hearing? Are you listening? And are you obeying the word? Maybe you're distracted listening, not applying listening, entertainment listening, obligated listening. But the right kind of hearing is the hearing that results in faith, that believes God's word. And does it. That's what Paul's point is here for Israel. They have not believed. Soon, I don't think anything would be sadder than to hear the good news and not believe it. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He came to be a king of a people that were rebels. He said, no, no, I don't want to enslave them. I want to rescue them. I want to make them my own. I want to draw them to myself so they could be my people and I will be their God. Do you believe that word? Do you own that truth? Are you in faith taking hold of and clinging to the words that you have heard? So what real faith looks like. And I would implore you, if you have not trusted in Christ, do so today because he will save all who call upon him. He will forgive you of all your sins, past, present, and future. He will be your advocate before the Father, who stands before God saying, their sin is paid for. And he does that for all who call on him in faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for what your word says. God, I pray that we would take careful how we hear. What good news it is that all who place their faith in Jesus will be saved. God, all of us in here could think of countless sins that should be unforgivable. Lord, there are sins that you've seen that no one else has seen. Sins that you remember that we ourselves do not remember. 
that would earn us eternity separated from you. Lord, we're only right because of your son. We're trusting in Jesus to save us, to be our advocate, to be the only one that, not just our helper, but our rescuer, the only one that secures our eternity with you. Lord, thank you for the news that was preached to us by parents, by small group leaders, by friends. Lord, thank you that we've heard for those who believe in you. I pray, Lord, that those who are here that don't know you would hear the word rightly, would hear the truth and believe in your son. That you would save some, even this morning. Because that's who you are, Lord. You're a savior. We rejoice in that. We boast in you and not ourselves. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.